It's kind of like an MMA fighter, but without the muscle, you know? Or like the entourage and the like, copious amounts of monster energy drink. That's what I feel like I look like right now. Oh, so, and, and I'll say this. My family, look, we take seriously the practice and the discipline of the annual, well, No Shave November, okay? It just so happens that my three-year-old and my wife are terrible at growing beards. So... I end up looking like Gandalf. Um, Truly, I'll show you what I'm actually hoping for because you know I love to show slides. Yes, this is, someday this will be me up here on the left. And well, this is actually a depiction of Brett and I leading worship a decade from now, okay? So be ready, only a decade away, okay? 2031, this is gonna happen. See, you can tell this is Brett because it's got a goatee. Yeah, and other hair. All right. (laughs) So if you're just joining us, uh, we are studying through the Gospel of Matthew. Um, Many of you were taught that Scripture is God-breathed, it's inspired by the Holy Spirit, and that is 100% true. The Holy Spirit would be poured out, in fact, on Matthew, the one who wrote this Gospel, leading him to certain conclusions and giving him clarity. But can we also recognize that Matthew is no dummy, right? The author of this book is absolutely brilliant. He's educated. He's a, he was a student of Jesus and resurrected Jesus, right? How cool is that? Helping him put together the dots of how everything made sense in humanity and the story of God. You could say that this was Matthew's master thesis, like a culmination to his entire life, his entire being being poured into this, you know? Even after the resurrection of Jesus, probably like minimum 15 years before he actually put pen to scroll and began writing this. Just think how much thought went into this. So all that to say, Matthew didn't just like, you know, write this on a whim. He didn't just wake up some November beautiful morning and go, I think I'll try writing the Holy Bible today. (laughs) Right? (laughs) No. So much is poured out into this. Furthermore, Matthew is living during a time of extreme persecution and suffering. Persecution for his belief in Jesus. If not from the Romans, then certainly from the Jewish leaders. And we know from Matthew's life that by being a tax collector, even his own family members would be at odds with him. So this gospel not only highlights the suffering King Jesus from birth to death, but it also is written from a place of suffering, difficulty, and distress itself. So in lieu of that, the title of today's teaching is Up From the Ashes, which should ring a bell. We just sang that song. Up from the ashes, hope will arise. Death is defeated. The king is alive. And today we're just going to look at one thing, really. How does suffering, evil, and death fit into the kingdom of God? And we're going to embark on what I would say is a profound paradox that begs the question, why is there suffering? Or, or what philosophy would call the problem of evil? Does God allow it? And if so, why? Now, the scriptures never shy away from the subject. If you read this Bible left to right, you see so much of this in there. So neither will we. I love what C.S. Lewis said. He put it this way. The, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. How many of you have heard that quote before? Yeah. Okay, so let's wake up. 
Let's prepare our hearts. Let's take notes. Let's attend to the pain this morning. And go ahead and open your Bible or your Bible app to Matthew chapter 27. And we're going to start at verse 32. So Matthew 27, verse 32. And before we pray, I just want to read through this passage top to bottom. Matthew 27, verse 32. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And there they offered Jesus wine to drink, mixed with gall. Now this is a quote of Psalm 69, meaning they tried to poison Jesus. But after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Verse 38, two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Yet another uh, foretold scene, by the way, from Isaiah depicts this very thing. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, speak, uh, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified on both sides of Jesus also heaped insults on him. Verse 45 From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land, just as prophesied in the book of Amos. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Skip down to verse 50. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. Jesus is dead. Would you pray with me? Lord, this is a a sobering moment, not just for us this morning, seeing the death of our God, of our Savior, but also recognizing this pinnacle moment in history, the darkest day. Is incredible the story that you are telling, Lord. And I want to pray especially for those today who maybe have suffering in or around their family or they themselves personally are going through darkness. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy on us. Teach us what we ought to hear, God. We pray this in his name and all God's people said. Amen. Amen. Pretty heavy, right? Take a deep breath. We just read one of the most devastating, heartbreaking, again, pinnacle moments in all of history. Jesus, God in flesh, dies. And he dies miserably. 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Me, your son, your child. His passing was not peaceful. He didn't slip away into the night in his own bed. No, instead, it's an absolute nightmare. In the words of Isaiah, he bore our shame on the cross, our suffering, our iniquity, our failures. He was oppressed. He was crushed. He was afflicted. He bore the sin of us all. I mean, this is crazy. This, I think we can all agree, is utter despair. In case you missed the context, Jesus was supposed to be king, right? Imagine yourself in that moment, a follower of Jesus. This is the king. This is the Messiah, the promised one from all of scripture, our future hope, our dream, not just for the Jews, but for all humanity. But now he's dead. The dream is dead. And we're left questioning, what on earth can we put our hope in now? If Jesus couldn't get people to turn away from evil, what hope do you and I have? God, if you exist and you're good, how can this be? And the conclusion that could be made would simply be this, God, God, you must not exist or we have surely been fooled. Or perhaps God is a cosmic sadist. Suffering. We're on the subject, so let's talk about it. Let's go there. Real suffering. I want to talk about real suffering. Not like, I don't know, getting stuck in traffic or like breaking your iPhone screen or like if you're an Oregon State Beavers fan, you know, or if you showed up here on a Sunday when we didn't have donuts. You know, that's not real suffering. Sorry. Um, definitely not waiting for the sequel of Top Gun Part 2, all right? But that's where I'm at, right? No, real suffering, real down, like down and out despair, deathly pain, depression, powerlessness, hopelessness, suffering. Now, some of us have maybe not taken seriously enough pain and suffering. After all, God is good, right? Right? God is good. I love this quote, though. C.S. Lewis, he says, (laughs) this is great. What do people mean when they say, I am not afraid of God because I know he is good? Have they never even been to a dentist? (laughs) Right? There's something profound in that quote. In this life, we are nearly forced to reconcile God's goodness and the existence of pain. Jesus said, in fact, in this life, you will have trouble. You will. You will have trouble. We will all likely experience suffering at some point in our life and or some version of it, perhaps Like a thousand of saints before us have referred to as the dark night of the soul. When God feels distant, when God feels far away, when our faith fails us. How do we suffer? Let's just name it. Loss of faith. A loss of a loved one. A miscarriage. Illness or cancer that could lead to pain or serious impairment or disability. Or even death. Divorce or any painful and broken relationship you are in. A loss of a dream, loss of a business, a loss of a career. And that list isn't exhaustive by no means. There are also social outworkings of suffering. I think of persecution or oppression or injustice. Say, for example, like a child who would be sold into sex slavery, raped, killed, abandoned, or dies on a drug overdose. Or even political suffering, thinking of persecution happening right now in Afghanistan. 
And then there's what I would call natural suffering. This is like self-inflicted suffering at the hand of, say, accidents or natural disasters, earthquakes, tornadoes, or, for example, even the eight people that died this last week at a concert in Houston. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy on us. All of that stuff, okay? Again, the list isn't exhaustive, but all of that stuff is suffering. And I think we can all agree that this type of suffering, it cuts to the depths of our souls, any and all suffering. Now, some of you are in the middle of it today. And it's a long, painful journey towards healing, if there's healing this side of life. There wasn't for Jesus, by the way. And before I go any further, I want to actually apologize. I want to apologize on behalf of the church to any of you who have been ostracized for your suffering made to feel like you're a second-rate Christian who just can't get their act together, who just needs to have more faith. That was not okay. That's not in Scripture. And it doesn't represent this church well or the Big C Church and how the church has acted historically. We need to suffer with one another. We need to learn how to do that, willing to create space to mourn and to cry and to question, not just looking for the quick answers. I mean, I think we could learn a lot from the book of Job. Job's friends, who often get a bad rap for their theology, the first thing it says about his three friends is they came, when Job lost everything, they came and just sat with him for a a week. A week. Silence, just being with him before they spoke a single word. We can learn to do this better. We can learn to suffer better as a church. We can do a better job. So again, I apologize to anyone who's been made to feel ostracized in your suffering. But also, please don't misunderstand today's teaching. Um, Like, this is not going to be a, hey, if you're suffering, cheer up, you know? Just have more faith. But rather, I, I can only hope that we will give you a door of hope this morning. That will crack that door open. And I understand that in your suffering, the door to God feels slammed shut and locked, and nobody is listening to your cry or your knock. I get it. I get where you're at. Suffering causes all kinds of emotions fear, loneliness, anxiety, anger, hate, confusion, betrayal, deep hurt, depression, powerlessness, hopelessness, to name a few. Suffering has a way of testing the integrity of our soul, our faith. When suffering comes, it hits hard. You get the sense that that what you built your entire life on, your faith, years of following Jesus, is blown over as easily as a house of cards. What is even real in that moment of deep suffering? And this is where Jesus' crucifixion meets us this morning. It meets us right in the middle of our suffering, and it provokes our question, God, why? Where are you? Do you see? Will you do something? Do you care? And as we read, does he forsake us? Are we forsaken? This next section, are we forsaken? Let's answer that question. Has God distanced himself from us when we are suffering? Jesus cried it out, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's a fair question and a popular one. Does God the Father, as a modern hymn says, turn his face away? You guys have sung that song with me, right? How great the pain of searing loss, the Father turns his face away. Do we believe that? 
Does God really look away when the damage is too great, too gruesome, too disturbing of an image? I know what the secular narrative would say. I know what it would say about suffering and death. It would just simply be, this is the end. Suffering leads to death. And death is the nail in the coffin, so to speak, or literally. Sorry, no promises on an afterlife or meaning or purpose. Good luck. That's the secular narrative. But what's worth for us, what's worse for us who believe in God, does God really forsake us in our suffering? Is that true? Is that not what Jesus just said? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Wait, what? Like, doesn't the Bible say multiple times, Deuteronomy 31, and in Hebrews, God says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you? Does the Bible contradict itself? Like, what should I believe? Or could it be that there's something else going on here? Something that is more true about suffering, evil, and death. Something true about God's character and his kingdom and his rule. I'll tell you a quick story. Um, I lived in Portland. I was working for this church over there and had a Bible college. And they asked me to take some of the students up in, like, the big white 16-passenger van up to an international flight out of Vancouver, BC. These students were going to go all over the world and serve different churches. Really cool thing. So, of course, load them in the van. I get them to the airport on time. They fly out, and I'm on my way back across the border, right? The Canada-American border. And the Canadians are like, take off, hey, they don't care, right? But you get to the U.S. patrol, whatever they are, and it's like, this is kind of a big deal. And I'll admit, I'm sweating a little bit, Okay. Like, I sweat even when it's like a toll road thing. I'm like, ah, the change, you know. So I'm coming up to like the U.S. patrol, whatever they're called, uh, border patrol guy. And and, uh, I'm coming through and, you know, he starts asking me questions. You know, okay, what was your trip about? Where do you work? And I said, well, I work for a church. And um, that was also a little bit nerve-wracking because I totally hit the duty-free store up for some scotch so you could hear the (laughs) bottles kind of (laughs) like clanging around in the back. I work for a church. Really? Okay. So the dude looks at me and he goes, well, then you would know what this means. And in terrible Aramaic, he says, Eloi, Eloi, Lama Sabachni. And I looked at him like, yes, you're quoting Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He goes, ah, you're a Christian. Okay, I'll let you through. And then I did the most, like, Jesus, like, Yoda-type move on him. And this is totally not, like, my style. But I looked at him and I said, but did you know what Jesus was quoting? Did you know he was quoting the psalmist? Go and find out what this means, and you will have eternal life. (laughs) Peace, dude. (laughs) Took off. (laughs) I might have embellished a little bit of that. But this did happen, okay? I promise you, this did happen. And so we're actually going to look at that clue that Jesus gave us on the cross. He is quoting Psalm 22. It's like a hyperlink, so to speak. So Jesus quotes Psalm 22. Go ahead and turn over there in your Bible. We're actually going to spend our rest of the time this morning in Psalm 22. This is really cool. Can't wait to share this with you. This Psalm was written earliest, earliest 500 years before Jesus was born, more likely 800 years Psalm 22. We'll start at verse 1. It should be on the screen behind me. Here's the line. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? 
so far from my cries of anguish. My God, I cry out to you by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you, our ancestors put their trust. They trusted in you and you delivered them. To you, they cried out and were saved. And in you, they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am like a worm and not a man. Scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusted in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Is this starting to sound familiar? Yeah. Verse 9, yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you. Even in my mother's breast, from birth, I was cast on you. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me, roaring lions that tear their prey open, their mouths wide against me. And I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. Wow, that is incredible descriptive poetic language there. Maybe you can relate. My heart is turned to wax. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd. And my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garden. Okay, for my garment. At this point, you're like, whoa. This is, I mean, this is the crucifixion of Jesus. Verse 19, but you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. So can we just state the obvious? Pause for a second here. This is Jesus' crucifixion. Prophesied, again, minimum of 500 years in advance. That's dope. Yeah, that's pretty cool. But why does any of this matter? So far, at this point in the psalm, it just confirms our assumptions, doesn't it? God has forsaken the psalmist. God forsakes Jesus. God will therefore forsake you and I. Are you guys ready for the surprise? Yeah, okay, enough tension building. Here we go. (laughs) I feel like this is a, any Princess Bride fans here? (laughs) You know that moment where like Wesley farm boy dies in the pit of despair? The pit of despair? Yes? You guys tracking with me? You know? Nigo Montoya finds him. He takes him to Miracle Max, Billy Crystal. Okay? Billy Crystal. And Nigo Montoya says, he's dead. He cannot talk. (laughs) Miracle Max looks at him. He says, woo-hoo-hoo. Look who knows so much. It just so happens that your friend here is only mostly dead. (laughs) Right? (laughs) So good. I know what all of you guys are going to do tonight. It's great. So let's keep reading. This is a surprise. The psalm takes a hard turn here. Notice the lift in tone. Verse 22. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him, revere him. All you descendants of Israel, for he is not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. 
He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. And all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion, rule, belongs to the Lord. And he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness. Declaring to a people yet unborn. He has done it. Yeah, come on. He has done it. Wait, what has he done? (laughs) Look back up. God has rescued those who suffer, heard the cry. He acted. He moved. He intervened. He healed. He saved us. And his rule, his kingdom is restored. Yeah, that's interesting. Even the phones are crying out. It's interesting. We don't have time to, like, exploit all the theological implications and the biblical parallels, like the book of Job, for example. But it forces you to consider, did Jesus intentionally quote Psalm 22 as if to hint at just the opposite? God has not forsaken me. Makes you wonder, doesn't it? I'm not going to push the theology on you, but think about it. The story is actually going somewhere. The story is actually going somewhere. Pay attention to what will happen next. And we're almost done, but uh, we need to quickly address the elephant in the room, as I said earlier, the problem of evil. So quickly, let's just look at the problem of evil, and then we'll get back to the story. I talk from time to time with my stepdad. Uh, we have a great relationship. He was, uh, is a retired Air Force colonel. He has seen a lot in his years. He's Catholic. He believes in God, um, but of course, he has his doubts. And we were talking the other day, and he was being open with me. He just said, yeah, Michael, and he knows I'm a church person. <laughs> so he says, uh, you know, honestly, my big hang-up in faith is essentially, why does God allow suffering and evil? I think a lot of us can relate with that. Now, I can't solve the problem of evil for you here in like two minutes, but What I do want to give you is some hope. I want to crack that door open to say some things that should be helpful. One, for the philosophers, the problem, I think we have a slide, yep. The problem of evil must be held hand in hand with the problem of good. Why does God allow evil? Well, why does God allow so much good? Like, again, if you're a secular philosopher, like how does survival of the fittest and random atoms bouncing against each other lead to goodness and beauty? For us, it's a reminder that God has made things good. In creation, the first two chapters of your Bible, he says it over and over again. He saw creation, he said, this is good. And we don't get to complain about evil. We don't get to be presumptuous in this generation while enjoying all the goodness of God as if we invented goodness. Number two, evil has no purpose in this world. Evil has no purpose. The problem of evil is actually problematic in itself. To solve it would be immoral. It's like a weird brain twister game right now. If you could find a reason for evil to exist, you would literally open a Pandora's box. Does that make sense? If it doesn't, that's okay. (laughs) Now, suffering can have its purposes. It's true. 
There can be purpose for suffering. However, I would argue legitimate suffering is a byproduct of evil. So then, the question then remains, why does God allow evil and suffering and death? Or put another way, why did he allow the snake to get into the garden, the adversary, the Satan? Whether God knows the future or not, why doesn't he give evil the, uh, the, the Thanos snap? Any Marvel Avenger fans, you know? Like, why doesn't God just, boom, no more evil right now in this moment? Immediately eradicating it. And here's our big answer. And this is the point of today's teaching right here. If you tuned out, tune in, okay? Only 10 more minutes here. The story isn't over. Problem of evil? Answer? The story isn't over. God doesn't allow evil. He hasn't, and he won't. And we ask the question so presumptuously as if humans have the right to judge God, yet... We're the ones who cause most of the worst kinds of evil on earth. God is the one who's actually dealing with it. And he's dealing with it to the point of dying on the cross. Now, some of you are curious why I'm not referring to God's omniscience. Like, omniscience is a big fancy word for God knowing everything, like the future and maybe even controlling it, his sovereignty. I just want to quote really quick St. Teresa. She says this, his majesty knows what is best for us. He does not require our opinion on the matter and, in fact, has every right to point out that we don't have any idea what we're asking for. C.S. Lewis suggests the same thing. Our mortal questions on suffering are unanswerable from an omniscient God, similar to asking God, how many hours are in a mile? Or is yellow square or round? It's all good stuff to ponder, but for me, all of that is beside the point. Like God's knowing or controlling the future is beside the point. There is an acceptable hypothesis, at least, and it goes something like this. There is more going on in the grand story we're in. The story is not over. And there was some stuff that went down before we entered history, and there will be some stuff that needs to go down after life, after death. Read Revelation, or you can read the book that we recommend, Unseen Realms, on your own time. But put another way, there is suffering, death, and evil because we have not yet entered into new heaven and new earth. So we need to understand the storyline. We're going to end with this point. Understanding the plot, the storyline. Now, say, for example, uh, I was watching a movie or something, or somebody's watching a movie, and you invite a bunch of friends over. And somebody comes like 30 minutes late into the movie, right? And they sit down. And I do this to my wife all the time, by the way. <laughs> you know, what are you watching? Oh. And they sit down. And then they start asking these nagging questions, right, honey? You know, like, what's going on? Why is everybody so stressed out right now? What are they trying to fix? Who's the bad guy? Who's the bad person? Who's the good? I see you whispering to Kristen right now, okay? I see you. I can see you. I don't know what you're saying. And you're, you're totally just annoying them. Now, if you're a good friend, you say something like, okay, well, one, Rachel McAdams and Gosling, they love each other, but, you know, the mom was hiding all the letters that he was writing because she doesn't want them to be together. And anyways, it's raining. They're kissing. It's going to go somewhere, okay? If you're a good friend. Now, if you're a bad friend, you're just like, get here on time, dude. Like, come on. You missed the whole intro of the movie. And yes, it's going somewhere. You need to wait till the end of the story. And I have this quick slide. There's a beginning, there's a middle, and there's an end to every story. 
Creation, it is good. Suffering, it is not good in the middle. Ending, new heaven and new earth. We are in, you can leave that slide up for a second. We are in the middle of the story. We are in, literally, like the middle of the book of Matthew right now. Jesus comes in the middle of history. You and I are really in the middle of history, or maybe to the closing years, but I would say we're right in the thick of it. And there's a good chance that all of history as we know it could actually be the middle of something else entirely. As the modern poets wrote in the days of emo rock, hey, don't write yourself off yet. It's only in your head you feel left out. It just takes some time. Little girl, you're in the middle of the ride. Everything, everything will be just fine. Everything, everything will be all right. All right. (laughs) Josh, that was for you. Yep. God is active in your life in this very moment. He doesn't check in or check out at creation or the cross or the second coming, being aloof or absent to the rest of time. So remember, we were born into a storyline, a storyline that already is in motion, and we can only rewind and fast forward so far as God reveals things. But here's what we do need to know. We do have a say in the storyline. How you respond to your suffering and evil matters. Death is not the end. The story of suffering and evil doesn't end with death. As we sang again, up from the ashes, hope will arise. Death is defeated. The king is alive. Hope will arise. The hopeless secular worldview doesn't win. The false notions that God is the cosmic sadness, saddest is not true. Our doubts, our depression, our tears in this life will not last for eternity. The king is not dead. The kingdom is still in power. It would be remiss of me if I didn't mention the Apostle Paul, who suffered as much as anyone else on earth, and yet he's that weird dude that's saying stuff like, rejoice always. Again, I say rejoice. Because of my suffering, I am furthering the gospel. I mean, here's a nutshell what Paul would say to you who are suffering today. And this is a paraphrase from Romans 8. You can read it on your own time. This is your hope. The Spirit will lead you in your suffering. Remember that you are adopted into the family of God. God, your Father, hears you when you cry out to him. You are an heir, a co-heir with Christ. You will share in the sufferings and in his glory. You catch that. You will share in Christ's sufferings and in his glory. Present sufferings won't compare to the glory that's coming. All creation itself, your body included, will be redeemed, liberated from bondage, bondage to decay, and brought into the freedom and glory of children of God. So... Paul says, we wait patiently. All of this suffering and groaning is working together for good. I'm just going to read the rest of chapter 8, actually. It says this, if God is for us, who can be against us? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised from life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep for the slaughter. No, in all of these things we are, here's a famous line, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And it ends, Romans 8, verse 38. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present or the future, 
nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I didn't even have to ask for it. Thank you. (laughs) I'm going to invite the band come up to come up, Josh and Nikki. We're going to end here. Actually, I'm going to start a little pad noise here. Why not? Let Mixmaster Ryan back there do some work. Yeah. We're going to end here. Listen, this is for all of us, okay? In your suffering, you are not alone. You are not alone. God sees you. He has not forsaken you. Death is not the final ending. Got you, bro. Got you. That was my fault, not yours. Okay, I'm back. I was like, squirrel moment, okay? (laughs) Death is not the final ending. As the king is resurrected, the kingdom will bounce back and all will be restored. But restoration, just so you know, will look different. It will be different moving forward. There's no going backward. You cannot repeat the past because, point two, glory awaits you. This is not the end of the story yet. Believe the father looked at his son on the cross proudly. Yes, God suffered as his son was being crucified, but he was also never more proud of his son than in that moment of obedience. His son literally saved and made a way for all humanity. The Father looks at you today, this morning, proudly as you remain obedient to him in your suffering. Now, hear me out. Your suffering is real. Suffering was real for Jesus, but it's not the end. Your suffering is not the end. Up from the ashes, the king will have victory, and you will be with him, joining him in resurrection. New bodies, new creation, new heaven and earth. And so lastly, you have a purpose. You have a purpose. Psalm 22 said, fulfill your vows. Paul was even more straightforward. Like, we need to move forward preaching the gospel. (laughs) There is meaning. In your suffering, there's meaning. There's purpose. Like Jesus and Paul to actively combat suffering and evil by expanding the kingdom of God, bringing his restoration, his healing, renewal, and goodness wherever we go and whatever we do. We have a purpose. Part of God's solution to the problem of evil involves you. You who are suffering and you who are with us in this room. It involves us. And that, my friends, is why we must have a theology of kingdom. To enter into the biblical narrative and see life and goodness and death and evil for what it is, the grand story, where it is all going, and what part we play in it. Again, quoting Psalm 22, let's all stand. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of afflicted one. Let me say it again. Psalm 22, for he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but he has listened to his cry for help. And finally, just a flashback to chapter 24 of Matthew. Jesus encourages us with these words. Because of the increase of evil love, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved, will be healed. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the world, in the whole world, as a testimony to all of the nations and to the end. 